0: Good afternoon everyone. I'm Carol Soon, Senior Research Fellow and Head of Society and Culture at the Institute of Policy Studies. Welcome to the second installment of IPS Online. IPS Online is a regular virtual series that discusses issues relating to Singapore's governance, economy, society and culture. This forum is being live streamed on Facebook. It will also be recorded and uploaded on the IPS website and Facebook page later. Please submit your questions at any time through our Facebook page. We will try our best to answer them. Now, the forum will last an hour, but depending on how the discussion goes, it may go on for a little bit longer, and we hope that you'll be able to stay with us. Today's topic is private data, public good. Now, by gathering location data and other personal information, Digital surveillance has helped countries like China and South Korea manage the spread of COVID-19. Some countries are already starting to use phones to record data, including names, addresses, gender, age, location, and COVID-19 test results. Users of Australia's Safe app modeled closely after Singapore's Trace Together app will be contacted by health officials if an app User, they have come into close contact with, tests positive for COVID nineteen. In Egypt, a recently launched app uses a phone's location services to alert users if they have been near anyone with COVID nineteen. Now there are more countries, including UK and the US, which are in different stages of rolling up, rolling out contact tracing apps as they contemplate loosening restrictions and reopening the economy. In India the Arogya Setu app is nearly mandatory. The app continuously collects data through Bluetooth and GPS and cross-references the data with the central government database to determine if the user has come into contact with an infected person. In March, the Singapore government launched Trace Together, but only about 25% of the population have downloaded the app. Now, this adoption level is way below the 75%, which is required for the app to be effective. To date, there has been much debate on the use of such apps in countries that are rolling out similar initiatives. On one end, people from different sectors have raised concerns pertaining to privacy intrusion, security threats, and opening the door to government surveillance or more government surveillance. On the other end, we have some calling for the use of digital contact tracing apps to be made mandatory. While the focus has been on the use of personal data during a pandemic, the use of personal data for public good has broad and long-term implications beyond COVID-19. Through today's forum, we hope to identify policy issues and prefer possible solutions as we navigate what is clearly a complicated and difficult issue. Now, before this session, we had invited you to take part in an informal poll on the topic. Let us take a look at some of your responses. Can we have the first slide, please? Now, this slide shows the top statements which saw greater agreement among the poll respondents. The majority thinks that privacy is not more important than contact tracing. The government may use personal data for the purposes they declare. And the government must accept liability for personal theft and abuse. Next slide, please. And here are the statements that saw greater disagreement. People feel differently about if they are being tracked when they're using the app. Who should be responsible for the safety of data? And they feel differently about opting out from giving personal data to the government. And now I would like to introduce our panelists who will take this debate further. Our first panellist is Associate Professor Song Jun Wong. Dr. Song is from the Barnett School of Planning, Faculty of the Built Environment at the University College London. He is joined by Ms. Thieu Yiling, Senior Fellow from the Centre of Excellence for National Security at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies. The third panellist is my colleague, Mr. Christopher Gee. Senior Research Fellow and Head of Governance and Economy at the Institute of Policy Studies. I would first invite each panelist to share his and her thoughts about the topic. Now, Dr. Son, thank you so much for joining us in Singapore. South Korea has been regarded as a model for the use of electronic surveillance, which has enabled it to avoid severe lockdowns during the pandemic. About three months after the outbreak has started in the country, Only a handful of new cases are being reported daily, and 258 fatalities have been recorded in total. Can you share with us the latest developments in South Korea pertaining to the use of citizens' data in combating COVID-19? And also, what are some of the concerns surrounding what some would say is overexposure of people's personal information?
1: Right. Well, first of all, thank you, very, uh, thank you, Carol, for inviting me for this um, wonderful opportunity for, to share my views with people in Singapore. Uh, as as you are saying, South Korea has been doing very well in controlling uh, COVID-19, and in the process, um, uh, three. Three different types, I mean, three types of surveillance technology have been used to trace patients. It was a mobile phone location data, credit card transaction data, and the transportation card data. Uh, apps are used only to check the location of a confirmed patient and the self-quarantining people, not to find the new patients. So it was mainly mobile phone, credit card, and the transportation uh, card data that was used to find the contacts of uh, people, to find the people who have contacted with confirmed the patients. And it has been successful as you, as Carol has been saying, and uh, so no lockdown and the dance clubs, movie theaters all open, not to mention factories and offices. And there has been, this, uh, there was a scheduled opening of schools and universities in the next month. But uh, there was until last week. And something happened on six of May. Uh, there was um, a patient was found. That he was just one of the patients. I mean, we had patients, uh, a few patients every day. But it turned out that this particular patient visited five dance clubs in Itaewon in one evening. So, so these five um, five. Uh, clubs became the hotspots of, of infections. So Seoul Metropolitan Government uh, declared the um, entire area of Itaewon where fiber dance clubs are located as the dangerous area. And the main problem, I mean, one of the main problem is that um, the are lots of dance clubs and the bars there where infection is, is very easy. But another problem is that it's, a, it's an area where uh, LGBTQ community gathers. So, uh, so because of the high concentration of LGTBQ, and 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 obviously they are they are likely to be reluctant to come out for, for testing because many of them are still in the, in the closet, and and so government is is um, is is two things to deal with this situation. On the one hand, they got the list. Of more than 2,000 people who are in the Taiwan area on that day and on the day of infection. So they have the list. I mean, they, the, the list is from the mobile phone location data because, as you all know, uh, mobile phones are connected to mobile towers. So by uh, by by getting record of um, connections between mobile phones and mobile tower uh, the mobile phone companies always have a record of location of mobile phones so the uh, seoul metropolitan government got that data so they have a full list of people who are in the area uh, on, on the day uh, and and so on the other hand um seoul metropolitan government is a promising complete unanimity uh, of, of, of testing, and at the same time threatening fine of two thousand US dollar. And LGBTQ communities is collaborating, especially the celebrities, celebrities like singers and uh, and, and the comedian, uh, two biggest celebrities of the community, is ask, appealing for the community to get tested. Uh, it is it is um, it is probably the biggest crisis since. Since two months or so ago, when uh, when there was a big outbreak in in, in Christian Church, uh, so some Koreans are afraid that what happened to foreign workers in Singapore can happen to LGBTQ community in South Korea, but um, but there there is difference. I mean, foreign workers in Singapore work and and they sleep together, but. LGBTQ community in South Korea go to clubs a lot, but they don't uh, they don't necessarily live together. So uh, that's the latest latest news.
0: Thank you, Dr. Song. Right
2: mm-hmm.
0: now, South Korea feeling South Korea strategy includes the use of phone alerts, but not the Bluetooth apps being developed elsewhere. Like what Dr. Son has mentioned, it is based on a degree of surveillance that people in many other countries may not accept. Now, in Singapore, surveillance by the state is not new. We have island wide CCTV cameras, and there are plans to fit lampposts with sensors and cameras to collect a wide range of data. So, what would you say are the key barriers to people's adoption of the contact tracing app in Singapore, and how should concerns be addressed effectively Thank
2: you Carol and uh, like dr. son uh, I'd like to kind of record my thanks to uh, IPS for inviting me to uh, be part of this panel um, these are strange times indeed and of course uh, it's not just us in Singapore like you were saying but there are many countries around the world grappling with this uh, with this issue about about tracing and using and using data so I'm aware of these following concerns a loss of privacy, data security, you know given the instances of cyber attacks on government databases, you know the most notable being the SyncHealth health one, and concerns about the functionality like turning on Bluetooth you know which is how the app works you know, it just eats up your phone battery. Uh, I've also heard people say that because you know since we're all not really out and about because it's circuit breaker and you know being told to stay at home, there's no point using the app. So when people assert. That they have privacy concerns. You know, I'm thinking it could be fears about what they imagine the uh, the app may access on the individual's phone, and what data could be collected about the individual's location. And you know, maybe what that might di- disclose about the person's movements, where they've been, you know, and in, in what location and time, of day, and, and all that. Now, this mindset persists, and despite the very clear outlining of how these um, data privacy concerns um, are addressed on the Trace Together website. It's, it's very clear, it's very clear there. Uh, maybe people just feel that, you know, this privacy is, is, is such a, you know, an amorphous and uncertain thing, maybe in the Singapore context, because we don't have, we don't have a, a constitutional right of privacy. And so they're not sure what it means and and how far it extends what my rights are so i try and sort of like maybe shut down a conversation by saying i'm concerned about privacy so therefore end of story so another aspect might be this you know like you mentioned there's the existence of cctv cameras everywhere people know this the thing is they're placed far enough away so psychologically any awareness of them is peripheral You know, whereas your smartphone is very much in close proximity with you and that may well hit closer to the bone in terms of feeling that your movements are being traced, that you're being surveilled. Then the concern about data security. It may be the thought that I don't want to let the authorities have this data about me because I don't know if it will be safe. Unsurprising, given the state of cyber attacks on government databases, in some instances, resulting in the data being compromised. And so at the heart of this is a trust issue. So then you have the concern about functionality, and this is you know, essentially a, a very pragmatic sort of reaction. Now, this is a valid one. The use of any app shouldn't compromise the overall functionality of the host device, which would then affect the functionality of the app. Now, the use uh, mustn't be onerous or difficult you know, because that's a market fail right there, I think. All right. Then the final concern about you know no point using the app since people are moving around less. Well, this may be valid during circuit breaker and getting people to stay at home. You know, but as we gradually open up society and the economy, now this may be less relevant as trace together could be in usage for the foreseeable future. You know, and as uh, you know, Dr. Song just 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 you know pointed out there are a number of instances around the world. You know, South Korea being example where. Countries are opening up or in, in, in that case, you know, South Korea never really completely shut down um, and infection numbers are picking up again. So um, this, is, this is actually for the medium term that, that you know, the government hope, is hoping that we can use trace together. So my thought is that you will have this range of responses because people are being persuaded by the government, you know, persuaded, nudged, cajoled, please, please help us into stepping up to help with a national security matter and the matter of public health. Now more often than not, we are told to do something as an imperative. This is clarity. Do this. So then we go and do it. But in, in this instance, we are being asked to please help the government. It's not mandatory for you to do this. We need your consent. And maybe people are confused and not knowing how to respond they may be thinking you now if if I if I if I uh, sign up for the app if I install it if I download it you know what about all the concerns I I, I outlined earlier is there privacy you know is my data secure you know I, I can't keep recharging my phone you know all the time it's not convenient and look the government is empowered under the infectious diseases Act to require you know um, something like this yeah, that do this because we need the information to keep the community at large secure no but it's refraining from exercising that executive muscle it seems almost seems to be like a negotiation almost between the, the state and, and and the individual you know with one side of the, of the of the bargaining sort of unsure of the intentions of the other so you know I was I was thinking about your question and I'm like are we witnessing a modification of the social contract between citizen and state? So, Trace Together is different from One Service, you know, otherwise known as the Powto app. People are enthusiastic about using One Service to report circuit breaker violations. This is a one way street. You know, I report what I think is circuit breaker violating, and the government takes care of it. So, you have the satisfaction that you have done your duty as a concerned citizen. Now, Trace Together requires something very different it's a two way communication that we may or may not want to have. Maybe we don't want to know bad news. It depends on your on, on your psychological makeup. Maybe we can't see beyond personal convenience, or, or see beyond the fact that ignorance of exposure could lead to wider infections. Now there is also then the uh, you know there's also the phenomenon of optimism bias. You know we think it won't happen to us. We won't be infected. You know only to others. It has a whole other debate about othering. You know which is this is not the maybe this is not the forum for it. So people may be left wondering. Okay. You know, so um, government says it's not mandatory, I have a choice. But if I don't sign up for this, will they know I didn't sign up? What if they find out? Is there a way for them to find out? And is there going to be a consequence? Frankly, the only consequence I see is that a person who does not have the app will be denied, denied entry to many places. So you exercise freedom of choice, but then as a consequence, your freedom of movement is restricted. So the app as I see it, this is very, very much in beta. It hasn't even been stress tested, you know, because we just don't have the numbers, the sign up numbers to do it. Um, I was just reading on the, um, I think MIT review, Iceland is using an app, which is sort of based on our on our, our platform on, on, on Trace Together. They have only a 40% take up rate and their authorities, I think, you know, no great shakes. This doesn't, not a silver bullet. You know, you still have to do manual tracing, but Trace Together was never marketed or promoted as a silver bullet. This is the only thing we need because it actually complements, it supplements manual tracing. So um,
0: I think that's all I have to say at this point. Thank you, Ilin. That was uh, a very, very comprehensive response. You talk about the different types of concerns that people have, ranging from issues they are experiencing with the functionality, as well as certain possible cognitive biases, and certainly privacy fears. And we are already seeing certain questions in the Facebook comments, Uh, very pointed questions with uh, regards to uh, privacy, um, government consultation, et cetera, which we will come back to. Now, Chris, over to you. Now, the pandemic has brought to the fore, again, the very age-old tension and debate between the personal and the public. So beyond COVID-19, what applications and benefits does the sharing of personal data hold for society at large? And how, how do you think we should define this public good?
3: Okay, thanks, uh, and hi, everyone. Um, I'm, I'm very glad, like uh, Dr. Son and Eling, uh, to have this opportunity to speak about this issue of private data and the public good, which I think is a, a very, presents some very stark choices for our society, both in the near term as we adapt to life uh, with COVID-19, but even more importantly, our, our long-term success as a united progressive society. So, Carol, I'll, I'll answer your second question first and then hopefully cover your your first question as we go through. I'll make the case, the the argument that in the world that we will live in in the future, one where we'll have to contend with possible global threats like recurrent pandemics or climate emergencies, our notions of private or confidential data will need to become more adaptable and more capable of being shared, depending on the context, to serve the broader interests of the community and therefore indirectly also benefiting the individual sharing his or her private data. Today in Singapore, we we live in a dense urban setting, a global city-state that has thrived on the networks that have their hubs centred in in Singapore. This physical proximity, this co-location, the agglomeration uh, in 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 this city have increased the economic and social dynamism of the place. And Singapore today is a highly developed, sophisticated society an economy with one of the highest GDP per capita rates in the world. But this population density also brings with it downsides, what economists call negative externalities, such as congestion, environmental degradation, and the greater risk of disease spread. It is in this immediate crisis, a life-threatening situation like what we have at the present, that I think most Singaporeans, like the South Koreans, implicitly understand the idea that personal liberties and rights would have to be subordinated in the public interest. That is why I think, just as we have accepted, perhaps a little reluctantly, greater restrictions on our personal li- liberties, such as having to wear face masks in public, will also ultimately embrace the use of apps like TraceTogether and Safe Entry, once the technical issues that Ealing talked about are all worked out, and particularly if we are mandated to use them by law. However, as we get beyond this immediate crisis, if we want to live in a society that is well-equipped to cope with not just the medical and environmental emergencies that come our way, but to thrive in non-crisis periods, we'll need to consider the ways in which we deal with our private data in the long term. And we can go two ways with this. The obvious and natural response would be to withdraw into our shells, hunkering down and raising the barriers around all our private data. This would be akin to the psychological, the behavioral responses that trigger the hoarding of food, face masks or even toilet paper. But this time, it is the hoarding of intangible assets, namely our, our, our private data. Going down this path is a reaction born of fear and mistrust that our private data will be stolen, misused by bad actors even including governments present and in the future. This manifests in a withdrawal from the online and digital space by everybody, and might also be accompanied by very costly data security arms races, the costs of which are ultimately borne by all of us. This seems to me to be most resembling the unsatisfactory situation that we have at the moment. The other way is not instinctive, but one that I believe that today's society living in a modern data-driven world will need to go towards. This path requires individuals that make up that society to support the principle that some private data can and should be considered a public good, just like highways, nature reserves, libraries, or HDB void decks. By pooling and aggregating data from both private and public sources, cities can more effectively plan infrastructure, allocate resources to overcome the negative externalities that I talked about earlier. This is the smart city, smart nation concept, and it allows for improved amenities through the use of data at all levels, from the highest to the micro individual level. We can already see examples of this sharing of private data benefiting the public at large and, and individuals who contribute their personal data. They all gain from improved services as a result. Congestion monitoring apps like Waze, collect personal location and travel data from commuters and aggregate this data to provide real-time journey planning information. Other examples exist in the health domain. Electronic health records contain a trove of personal data, almost all of which might be considered highly confidential and is heavily protected as a result. But if this data was anonymized and aggregated in such a way so as to ensure that no personally identifiable information remains, then it might be utilised in ways that benefit both individuals and society at large. And we can go even further and and consider contextual digital handshaking systems that help us navigate our lives in a post-COVID world where there is a civic responsibility on the part of citizens to share some of their personal but non-confidential data for the public good. And perhaps we can discuss what some of these uh, applications might be uh, a little bit more later on. May I just end? by reading out two verses from the English essayist John Donne, his famous poem from 1624, which many of you will know. He says, No man is an, an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. And therefore, never send it to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. In the context of the public sharing of private data, I would interpret John Dunn's words like this, every piece of myself I contribute to the whole enlarges my society because I am part of it. Every bit of data shared connects us all together and enriches everyone, making us greater than the sum of our individual parts. Thank you. And I'm eagerly anticipating the discussion that we're going to have all of this with all of you.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Yiling and Dr. Song. Um, I think all three of you covered very, very important points pertaining to this topic about personal data for public good. Uh, so we will start the discussion. And one thing that kind of, um, I, I think, is a common theme across all three of your opening remarks is the issue of privacy, right? Um, Yiling, earlier you mentioned in Singapore, we don't have a uh, system uh, or clear explanation of constitutional right of privacy, and we look at some of the questions that have come in. Um, if you allow me to check the questions that have come in on Facebook comments, um, we have a Mr. Dewey Sim, Sim who asked precisely about the issue of uh, privacy protection. So, for example, um, his question is: What can the government do to assure people that their data would not be used unnecessarily and will not be tapped on outside? of pandemic reasons. So, essentially, we are talking about, um, thinking about what we can do to overcome some of the privacy concerns about the sharing of personal data. Uh, perhaps i can we have some brief remarks uh, from you about this? And then uh, I want to, uh, and we'll see if the other two panelists have anything to contribute.
2: I'm thinking about what, oh, thanks Carol, I'm thinking about for uh, what, what, Chris, what Christopher just said about uh, the sharing, and um, I'm also thinking about what I said about trust, and uh, I think we're at a at a watershed time now, where we're having to look at the whole issue of persons as sources of data that that feeds this digital pres- present and future that you know that is envisaged for us. So I think, at a very very base level, it's holding it's holding uh, a government accountable. It's also expanding and broadening a conversation. And uh, I alluded to the social contract earlier on. You know, are we looking at a modification? Do we have to sort of rethink or or, or think differently uh, in terms of? what it means to be a part of society, a digital society. Um, Here's the the, the conundrum for me. We are happy to give our data to private corporations for whatever they promise us. But then we are a little bit unsure about how to deal with the, the government taking our data. I remember when we were discussing this, you know, uh, a, a couple of days ago. You know, vis-a-vis a corporation or an online platform, there is a transaction. I let you have my data. I get something back in return. Whether that thing is useful to me or not, that's a separate, um, that's a separate sort of like a, a conversation. But in, a, in 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 terms of the government wanting to use my data, I'm not sure what I get back in return, and. Um, Maybe that's not clear yet or maybe that is something that uh, government has to assure and be transparent about in terms of how they're going to use the data how they how they uh how they secure it and what measures they're going to take to to secure it and how they will use it in what context so it's it's very much a fact and circumstance kind of a uh Context here, and um, it's difficult to as it's kind of difficult to see you know where the line is drawn sometimes because it's all it's all, it's all context based. We have the Personal Data uh, Protection Act that is um, not applicable to the government. That is only that only kind of provides for data data protection in terms of uh, you know individual individuals and business organizations. So Zarin, and then you have other provisions, you know, and existing laws like the Criminal Procedure Code, you know, the the, uh, the uh, cyber, like the Cybersecurity and Computer Misuse Act. You know, government can access data of individuals from your telcos, uh, from from the platforms. They can request for it you now if it's for uh, public good purposes, national security purposes. So I mean, that's that's my. Re- immediate
0: response to that question. Thank you, Yiling. So essentially, I think one key point uh, that I take from um, what you just said is about transparency. So government have to be clear about what data is being collected uh, and used for what purposes. And I think in the comment section, um, Dr. Jillian ko from IPS, um, her comment was, we needing a clearer social compact. We, the government can collect the data, but it should specify the conditions when the data will be used, whom it will be released to, and if how other users will be prevented. Um, Chris and Dr. Son, uh, what are your thoughts on how else might we address some of these privacy concerns? Um, clearly, I think there have been some commentaries published on the topic, as well as uh, comments that were submitted by some of the Uh, viewers who participated in our uh, informal poll essentially alluding to the possibility of going on a slippery slope right so now we give our data uh, we we, through safe entry and trace together um, in future who knows how and our data will be used and what more will be taken from us so, how would you address some of these concerns? Um, Chris, may I start with you? And then after that, I would like Dr. Song perhaps draw on his experience and his analysis of, say, the South Korean case. Um, and um, how, how, how did the government address some of those issues?
3: Okay. You um, talked about this um, uh, slippery slope idea, um, Carol. Um, and um, I think we are already uh, part way down that slippery slope um, into that big brother scenario that we're all worried about um, I think Ealing uh, talked about this this you know um, very asymmetric uh, transactional based um, approach that we have with the the use of all technological all digital services at the moment where the um, the big tech companies uh, the government is essentially dictating to citizens um, the 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 you know kind of the things that we need to do with you know, Page long, multi page long privacy um, terms and the conditions before we can access the services that uh, have been provided to us. Uh, But I think, you know, uh, there is another way we can do this. And this is for citizens um, to take control over their um, attitude, their relationship to their own personal data. Um, And um, instead of being balkanized into our individual silos, we can collectively establish uh, what might be considered to be digital citizen charters, right? So, you know, governments like Canada, New Zealand have, have put out these um, digital charters, um, and, and you know, but, but this is not that. What I'm thinking of is more personalized, but um, self-organized digital citizen charters, which spell out our individual appetites for data sharing very clearly, allowing for access for, uh, allowing those who seek access to that data to convince each one of us the merits and benefits of giving the keys to our personal data, right? So, you know, craft these digital citizen charters uh, that, that essentially spell out our relationship with our data and what people will need to do to uh, allow us to give them access to, to, to that data. Dr.
1: Song? Yes. Um, so I I agree with the other two speakers said, and especially what Eiling said about the specific conditions that the government is allowed to use get access to the data. I think that's very important. We I think we have like a, we need a positive list uh, to clarify in what situation the government can access to what type of data. So in in um, the current situation in South Korea is, I mean, the current, currently, Center for Disease Control of South Korea is getting access to mobile phone data and um, credit card card data because of a specific law that was revised a few years ago after uh, in the aftermath of, of medicine 2015. So that law, uh, law for uh, prevention and then the control of infectious disease i mean this revised version of it specifies uh, what kind of uh, i mean alongside with all the other things it, it it has the list of things that center for disease control can do and that they get access to certain type of data through police and and for each individual the police have to approve the access of the data so there is the so the process is relatively transparent so which which is good, good but it turned out that that law wasn't perfect there were a few serious glitches and small but serious problems like uh, like, like, like the the incident that i mentioned earlier that this uh, one of the people who in, uh, who uh, who visited dance clubs in Itaewon uh, visited um gay club Right. So that's a, that's, a, that's a sign that this person might be one of the members of the LGBTQ community, which he may or may not want to reveal. So the name isn't known, but the information, the mobility information, is specific enough uh, to identify that, that person for people who already know this person. So not the general public, but people around him would see wouldn't know that this person has visited a gay bar right so that uh so that's um so the problem was that i mean that the law doesn't say that the center for disease control uh, could reveal that information so i think within after the positive list of things that uh, the government can do there must be a negative list as well within each of the positive positive uh, positive list you have to provide what the government shouldn't do. So in the current situation, South Koreans understand that this is the first time that we do this and we see the imperfections in the law, but we kind of, Koreans are kind of understanding mood, but we we, we, we see the problems there as well.
0: If I may follow on this, because we have a question from Mr. Kegan Lee. Um, this question is, did the South Korean government consult the public before rolling out digital surveillance tools? And what were the public's responses to some of these efforts?
1: The law was passed in the, in the National Assembly. So the data, uh, the Center for Disease, disease, disease uh, center for, uh cdc gets the gets the access to the data based on the law so there was no public consultation necessary before they get the disease before they get access to the data the only requirement was that the minister of health and welfare have to declare that this is a pandemic situation but before that happened the koreans already saw what happened in china so people are quite understanding that this was this was it, was, it was a necessary action the government should take. I mean, when the law was passed, it wasn't, it didn't make um, big news. I mean, it didn't, people didn't pay that much attention to this new law in 2016. But, uh, so it was, it already, the law already empowered the government to get access. When, when this, when the time has come for the government to use the law, people already saw what happened in China. So they didn't oppose oppose the enforcement of the law. Now,
0: Chris earlier talked about um, the long term important uh, implications about people sharing their personal data for the larger goal of the society, right? And he highlighted two possible two possible trajectories we can take. One way is for us to be um, to hoard our personal data, and the other way is to share it and Everyone benefits. Society benefits. Um, the economy benefits. Singapore, say in Singapore's case, our, it will help us fulfil our vision uh, as a smart nation. Um, I understand from you in one of our earlier conversations that you have you are writing a paper and you're doing some research on the other kind on the other situations. That means a non-pandemic situations where personal data has been used for public interest, right? Um, so, maybe could you share a little bit about, uh, um, you know, your findings, your thoughts on that? Um, I think you mentioned, for example, in the case of anti-terrorism, public security, etc. Um, how uh, how do the government embark on, you know, collecting personal data? Um, are there any specific concerns or glitches and how did they overcome them?
3: Okay, so so um, some of the things that uh, you know maybe we can conceive of uh, going forward. Uh, I, I talked a little bit about you know these digital handshaking applications, uh, and and what I'm thinking about are you know situations where we are going to be matching people with each other on the in the online space. So something like ride sharing or delivery sharing platforms, um, you know. So so you know, uh, Grab Hitch uh, is a, an example of something like that where you know, people can be pulled together um, and, 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 you know, combined together to get uh, mutual benefit from shared services. Um, we can also think about the sharing of time, i.e. volunteering, and matching volunteers with beneficiaries. Um, and, you know, indeed, you know, very much everything to do with the sharing economy. Uh, and I think, uh, Carol, you've done quite a bit of work in this regard. Um, other applications might include the, um, the secure signing of contracts, receipts of digital documentation and something that that's close to my heart you know calls for help and care by the disabled or the elderly right you know people uh, can wrap themselves up in, in, in their um, you know, their silos and wrap themselves up in you know, ever increasingly higher walls um, behind which they protect their data and their, their privacy. Um, but then you know in time to come when they um, actually need help when they become infirm or disabled or, or get old and need help, um, they are they are unable uh, to be recognised uh, because um, they've walled themselves up. Community can't help them, right? So I think you know if 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 we you know can you know think about all of these different situations when we you know cannot just act as act as individuals but can relate to the society in a very safe and secure way. I think that that's the path that we would definitely need to take.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Song, uh, Yiling, any comments? Uh, I was thinking about what um, Christopher,
2: was, Christopher was talking about a new way to look at data. And you, we've you've, you've, you've been hearing these very trite phrases of data is a new oil, um, data is a new sort of like a, a resource. And and, and my, my, my thought there was oil finishes at some point. <laughs> um, you know so does maybe it's so like a precious metal like like, like gold or these are exhaustible resources, and our our information is not exhaustible, and our data can be spun in so many ways to create value to be mined you know they even used to do data mining right they use that you they use that term, and uh, actually, this is a resource that we' will never run out of so i I, I, I really you know agree with with, with christopher that, that this is do we start looking and i know lawrence Lessig has said this you now do we start looking at data as property and i've written a little bit about it in, in some commentaries this uh, it it seems to be it seems to be something that's so the market sees it as you know a valuable thing to be monetized how are we benefiting from it from the markets um Exploitation. Collection and exploitation and, you know, spinning and respinning of of our data. How are we seeing that back in society? Because we are the sources of it. So data has value. And because we are digital now, I think we have to sort of like uh, adjust that mindset to say that, yeah, my data is valuable. My data needs to be protected. I need more control. And if anyone wants to sort of use it, whether government or, or corporation, I need to understand why. This is the informed consent thing. I think no one has, I, I think we haven't even used that word consent yet um, in, you know, in this discussion and you know, what is informed consent and how much information do I need? But uh, I think it's a starting point to think and I think it's important that we need to look at data differently.
0: Yeah, I mean, both you and Chris, um, emphasizes a lot on human agency, right? People needing to have a different perspective, perhaps even undergo a paradigm shift with regards to how they think about their personal data. So um, I link it to a, a comment or a question by Miss Eliza Go, you know, and we just wondering if communications, um, say by the authorities, have a role in helping people have a greater clarity you know, in deciding, in thinking about their, the use of their personal data. So um, Ms. Goh said that communications about the public use of private data is very important to increase people's willingness to take part in data collection and data sharing initiatives. How well do you think that Singapore has done in this respect? I mean, I would like, uh, feel free to jump in, Chris, and Yiling, and also Dr. Song. I mean, you mentioned that in South Korea, there seems to be um, little resistance, uh, quite almost like a willing embrace, because the South Koreans have seen what's happening in China, and implicitly, it, they, they understand the need um, to cooperate with government's collection of their personal data. But um, are there any lessons? I mean. Uh, that we can learn from the South Korean case on how um, the measures and the needs are communicated to the public. So, I will start with Chris and Yiling, and then we, um, we hear from Dr. Song.
3: Yeah. So, I, I think I uh, will go back to what I said earlier. You know, that, that I think that there is this asymmetry in, in our uh, relationship with our data, uh, and uh, the use of our data by the government or big tech companies. And, and I think what we need to do is just take that take back control. We can't just wait for um, you know um, uh, you know the government to to set those terms for us. And in fact, in Singapore, you know the, the government is also quite wary, as you saw in the Trace Together app, putting it together, that you know to to, to dictate too much in this in this space. So I think we we need to, to come to some arrangement um, arrangement with ourselves, really, all of us. Singaporeans need to come to some arrangement whereby we say, okay, this is how much we are prepared to share with each other. This is how much we um, are, are, you know, will jealously guard to our death, right? So, you know, and I think, you know, I go back to my uh, original point about, you know, this idea of digital citizen charters. It is a way by which we can all together say, okay, easily, this these are the principles by which we uh, will uh, guard and share data with each other. Right and uh, it you know allows for opt-in opt out uh, according to your individual um, user preferences
1: right um, uh, so one, one of the reasons in addition to I mean South Korean case uh, another reason um, for Koreans to trust uh, I mean, to allow the government to get access to the data was the recent experience of matters. I guess um, most of Singaporeans, don't even remember what happened in 2015 because it didn't influence Singapore much. Actually, South Korea was the only one place outside the Middle East that was affected by MERS, which was a huge shock to, to Koreans because South Korea in South Korea, SARS was, was nothing. So it was completely protected. But then uh, the MERS came in 2015, and more than 20, 25 people died. Uh, which is found small now when it is, the number is compared to COVID-19, but at that time it was a huge shock. And the lesson that we got was that um, the secrecy doesn't work. I mean, at that time, the government, uh, the administration tried to deal with it on, uh, you know, tight, on, with the tight control of the information. The government shared information with health professionals and a small number of experts and, and then try not to uh, let the information go outside the circle. And that caused a huge problem because this situation gave the hospitals an economic incentive uh, not to reveal the information that they have. Because if, they, if it is known to the public that this hospital has medical patient, other customers wouldn't come. So all the hospitals that were treating was hiding the information Mm -hmm. and they tried to make the the, the safety measures, security measures less visible to the public. I mean, this uh, pandemic control is difficult when they they just do everything, but when they try to make it invisible, it becomes even more difficult. So one of them, one of the main hospitals become hotspot of of, uh, of of infections and that so so they, they lost the control so eventually this whole metropolitan government uh, broke the central government's guideline and uh, publicized all the information that they had which eventually started the pandemic so so the lesson that the public the government and the health professional got uh, at that time, was that was the transparency is very important there. So, uh, so in a way, uh, South Korea is lucky uh, on on that account. And another issue was that um, at that time the Park geun administration uh, was dealing with other issues in in secrecy as well, and that led to that contributed to impeachment of Park as the president. So the current government which won the election after the impeachment had a strong incentive to deal with it differently. So it's going complete opposite. So it's are going to dealing with transparency and which is co- it, which is very effective in dealing with pandemic, but which also uh, has a problem in terms of, of, of data protection. So currently, uh, so I, I would say there, there was a bit of love involved in the South Korean government's uh, handling of the of, uh, of pandemic because those who are likely to be very sensitive about privacy protection are the ones who elected the government and those who are against the government, the conservative, are the ones who are less sensitive about this issue. So in both sides uh, they don't mind the government dealing with private private information at the moment.
0: Mm. Yeah. um Yiling, you I, yeah you wanted to say something yes
2: yes uh, responding to that question about communication make the communication consistent it has to be clear it has to be targeted to the audience that it wants to reach it has to be uh, sincere of course and um I'm not saying that isn't communication already. There is, and I'm kind of reminded of my past life as a as a practicing lawyer you know, when a client would come to to me and they would say, "You know, my rights are being infringed." And I'm like, "Oh, really? Oh, yes." And then and then there's somehow there is some kind of of issue, but their conception of what their rights are is a little bit um, incorrect or inaccurate, or it's, it's a perception, or they have latched onto something that they think is uh, the issue. And then it becomes important to them. And then I have to help them unravel that to say, is there a right in the first place that you are complaining this infringement of? It is difficult for government to communicate to the public at large about um, things that are technical and we can put out public consultations the PDPA had three public consultations before you know it kind of like you know went went to press and 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 went into force and um, people will take what they will from what you tell them and um, something that kind of Disturbed me a little in the last two or three weeks, when we were, I think, at the beginning of the whole wave of infections with the migrant workers, was a headline, a headline or like a, or a, or like the, the title of an article, and I, I forget which which uh, local uh, news news platform now. You know, um, technology in robotics being showcased, you know, to come. To combat COVID-19. And I'm like, why are you using the word showcased? This is not a time for showing off. Maybe use the word deploy. So that was something I'm like, don't show off, please. Just do it and say that we are doing it, we're utilizing it. Take a functional approach to it. And this is not about trumpeting our our, our robotics or our AI ambitions. No, this is not the time to talk about, about our, you know, our. Our data hub ambitions, we, we talk a lot about you know, visions and, and everything. And, and, and Christopher, I, I know you have, have alluded to that. I'm seeing, I'm seeing that this crisis is actually catalyzing our adoption of technology, forcing us, forcing us into, whether we realize it or not, into becoming more data-savvy becoming more you know uh, understanding how 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 we behave and how we're going to interact more digitally this is maybe the trigger we needed to really push smart nation but let's not talk in vaunting terms about it now please because that is the that's not reading the room and when you when you want to communicate clarity you know conciseness consistency do it often reach reach as, 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 as many parts of society as, as you can, and um, the transparency you know, as aspect is very important as well. Again, again, I'm not saying it's not being done, and maybe people just mm-hmm. don't really uh, want to know about it until they are confronted with a situation like this where they have to grapple with it. Because otherwise, if it doesn't affect me, I am not going to care
0: about it. If I may just jump in, also when we talk about uh, communication, uh, I I think uh, it's not just um, greater communication that uh, better communication that needs to be done by the government, but also by other parties. So, for example, you know, developers developers of the apps. I mean, they're not always right. They are not always uh, public sector developers. Correct. Um, in certain states in the US right now, we're seeing private developers. And of course, there's there your Apple and there's your Google, right? So I think, in terms of clarity, in terms of transparency, developers also need to provide um, more explicit guidelines and perhaps even best practice recommendations for things like how do you secure back end systems and how long would the data be kept. Uh, even when we download our apps, uh, from the, the app store, perhaps there should be more explicit app store policies on what additional information would be collected, right? When you download the app, for example, your GPS. Now uh, we are running a little bit out of time, so I want to go to two main things, here, two two final topics here. One is the big big elephant right in the room about making trace together mandatory. All right. So um, currently, I think it's only India. Uh, adoption of their Trace Together app. Okay, so um, in Singapore, uh, what do you think um, are the possibilities of the government mandating uh, the downloading of the app and the use of the app? And uh, do we anticipate any backlash? And how might we you know, want to circumvent that um, Chris or Ealing And then after that, I'll move to the last bit on the unexpected negative consequences of sharing personal data? Anyone? Mandatory
2: is not palatable. palatable. I think. The the government, I think I said this in my my opening remarks, the government can do this. But that would be sending the wrong message, I think. If things got to such an extreme situation, they may well do it. Um, I, I was just checking on the uh, MIT technolo- Technology Review, and there was um, that they're, they're doing us like survey of countries. It's China, uh, India, as, as you mentioned, and Turkey, mandatory. And uh, I think there are about thirty five um, places in the world right now which are grappling with this issue. And the last the last count, you know, like one hour before we got on, I was like, just look at. Who's using what when? You know who is mandatory and all that. Um, I, it, I'm guessing it may, it may only come to it being made mandatory if it really gets out of hand. If it really gets out of hand. That's my that's my point of view. Otherwise, you just fine if you don't download it, you just can't get into NTUC to buy your toilet paper. <laughs> Yeah, any I, comments? I,
3: I differ a little bit from Elaine. I think, I think, you know, um, mm-hmm. given the, the speed of, of things happening, I think, you know, what we do need is a law, and, and for the government to make it mandatory. Just as the same situation as with the face masks, using face masks in public, um, you know, there were some of us that that took on it uh, very quickly, but others had to be pulled into this use of or wearing of public uh, a face mask in public. Um, I, you know, and and the fines had to be imposed, or you know, even locking people up. So, so I think you know, um, we do need the law to act in this emergency situation. And I think, in the main, most Singaporeans, as I said in my opening remarks, you know, will accept this, right? They will, however, reluctantly accept this situation. I, I'm I'm more concerned about the impact that it has on the long-term relationship between us and the government i think you know once they they do this and impose that 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 law upon us mandatorily you know then then that worry about that slippery slope comes on every single time we are approached by the government again to share more data right so so i think you know it, it's a it's it sets a precedent and unfortunately it's it's not a nice precedent so that that's that's the trade off you know, I think the emergency situation. We've got to do it. Um, you can only change mindsets. You can change the habits of a lifetime only with the the, the stick of the law. Right? Unfortunately,
1: can I can I ask yeah. you a question? Because I'm not knowing yes. very well about this the, the, the tracing together app. Is it proven effective in other countries? Because a South Korea Sorry. is not is not using it and. It's, the pandemic is controlled with access to other types of data so i wonder if it is actually necessary to make everybody download the app before we yes. discuss whether it is I think,
2: it's, I think it's a stress test it's it needs a certain population to triangulate off before you can see whether it know we we move in brownian motion you know, we need that round and motion to actually sort of like you know bounce off each other to see if it, it works. And right now, what is what is the take up? It's kind of like twenty five percent of the population, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. twenty five. Yeah, we need what seventy five percent. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's, I think that's the thing. So we're very much in beta, and we only know if it's effective if we get to those numbers and start moving around. It's hard to say. Yep. Iceland is saying, come. you know, Iceland saying, hey, you know, we're using your we're using a version of your app. Not not effective. Not it's and and like I said, we we didn't make any claims that this is a silver bullet. This is like only supplementing
0: manual tracing. Okay. So I'll come I'll come to the last last topic. I mean, we have talked about, you know, um, Chris, you mentioned um, the benefits, right? I, I think we all know that there are key benefits to um, sharing of personal data during pandemic and you've made the case for why it's important to do it during non-pandemic times. But I think there are two possible um, uh, uh, associated problems, one of which is um, the exclusion of certain vulnerable segments. So, for example, we have a question from Ms. Jo Lee, you know, who asked in a South Korea case, how about vulnerable groups such as the elderly population, people with disability and those without tech devices when we implement such policies, right? Uh, Similarly, a recent survey that was done by the University of Maryland and the Washington Post highlighted um, very, very low interest among members of the public. And I think the survey also highlighted potential exclusion of vulnerable segments who are not digitally connected such as seniors. So this is one issue possible exclusion of certain pockets of the segment. The other uh, poss- uh, the other real problem we are seeing right now in South Korea and uh, recently reported in the case of China where personal information has actually led to the cyber bullying, cyber harassment and doxing of individuals. right So um, uh, what would some of your comments be uh, quick brief comments and then we will round- we'll wrap up.
1: Right. Song, um, would you like to start? Right. I mean, uh, in terms of um, the exclusion from the techo- use of technology, I think that's a, that is a less of a concern at the moment because, um, firstly, uh, so there isn't much that users have to do uh, um, for for the, for the use of government uh, government use of the data because uh, it's what people are confused is that. Um, location of a mobile phone is always recorded whether there is a gps function in the phone or not so even if you are using 2g mobile phone uh like from 15 years ago um, uh, mobile network providers still have have the still have record of the locations because mobile phone has to be connected to one of the mobile towers so the location of the mobile tower is obviously the mobile phone network provider knows where the the network tower is so they always have in uh, uh, know the input the location information of, of every phone every single phone that is turned on so even if you are even if you are not steady about with, with the smartphone, that doesn't affect uh, government u- the effectiveness of government use of, of data. And mm. and and but there are small minority who do not have mobile phones, but they are the kind who is less likely to be exposed to a virus. So that's sort of okay. And, and, and the cyberbullying, that, that that that's a serious problem, I think. And the names are unknown, but people still can bully the certain like, patient number 61 is, is an idiot. And that sort of remarks on the internet can hurt people. And so as far as you know, you are num- patient number 61. And that's uh, that was actually totally unnecessary. Uh, so when the government, publishes information about the location of infections they didn't have to uh, list all the places based on the patient number they could simply publish the locations of inform- potential into infections without connecting them to a specific people so they can mix up several people together uh, instead of listing uh, the visited places uh, patient by patient, so these these are the ideas. These are very new ideas that was that, that was reported in media only recently. So I guess um, they didn't think about this when they before mm. they implemented this law. So. Mm. Okay, um,
0: Chris Ealing, any final remarks on this?
3: Yeah. Uh, okay. So um Singapore, we have a digital inclusion blueprint, uh, and that sets out um, you know some of our uh, objectives in terms of you know in, uh, including some of these vulnerable groups i think you know this this pandemic the the, the reason why we need to you know accelerate the um, the, the 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 digital ac- uh, access for everybody uh, as Ealing was saying you know it, we need to do this now right so let's let's get going with that uh, uh, as fast as possible um, it is inequality in the digital Access space, and you know, as with income inequality, we think that you know this is something that needs to be addressed. Um, it affects the participation of all our, our members of the society, um, you know, um, and and you know, if if then they're, they're not included, they're not part of our, our citizenry. So you know, we need to act on this um, really quickly, I think. But you know, in Singapore, we, we we're, we're blessed; we have the resources to do this.
2: I think this this whole crisis, you know, is on a daily basis is revealing to us, and I don't have to go into the details, everybody who follows the news. We are seeing where the gaps are in society. We are seeing uh, where the vulnerable are. We are seeing where the disenfranchised are. We are seeing, you know, the the homeless, the, the rough sleepers. We are seeing those with mental health conditions. We are seeing people who just... You know, they're crawling up the walls. here yeah. all oh, cabin fever reacting to this. We are seeing yes. all, our, uh, all our flaws. And some of them are quite tremendous. And, uh, you know, Christopher, it was something that you, you said earlier on today. I said, uh, maybe we, we, need, we need to... This is a tabula rasa. This is a tabula rasa moment. Clean slate. How do we want to exist as, as a people? How do we want to... Um, you know, exist as as a as a society. Uh, where do we see ourselves post this? Because this is a great opportunity, and it's weird that I'm having to put a positive spin on this. But it's a great opportunity for people to take a very hard look at how we have existed, and how are the things we have taken for granted, and now we are seeing how connected we are. We are seeing how connected we are, and we're seeing how how vulnerable we are, and we're seeing. Yes, maybe we have to, you know, I agree with you, just look at our data, look at our data and look at how we we uh, we use it and how we can, you know, exploit it ourselves
0: mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. To, to kind of maybe fix these long-standing issues in society. Yeah, that's all I have. Okay. Great. Thank you for ending us on a positive note. I mean, this has been a great discussion. I think we have covered quite a fair bit of ground, but unfortunately, we've come to the end of the forum. Now, the informal poll that uh, you participated in earlier is still live. Now that you've joined us in the forum, we would like to hear from you on how you feel about the topic. So do share your thoughts with Poll. Now the link to the informal poll is posted in the comment section. So um, please allow me, you know, to thank you, the panelists, as well as to all of you who has joined, us, who have joined us at IPS Online. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you.